this is <coughs> this is the sixth day of this uh, January 2020 Rohatsu Seven Day Session, <coughs> and uh, we'll return to our text of yesterday, uh, which is the teachings of. Zen Master, Japanese Zen Master Tore, who is the Dharma heir of, of uh, Hakuin. And this is from the book called The Undying Lamp of Zen. Most of the texts we, we read from of these Chinese and Japanese masters and Korean were not written by the, the master himself. Uh, this one is the exception. They were, they were, uh, Put together from the master's talks, we left off yesterday, in which he, where he was talking about the power of vows, taking vows, and I just wanted to uh, read a little more about that. He's talking about the uh, above all the uh, the four bodhisattva vows, which we do every. Every day, he says that the strength of vows is rooted in compassion. And he says the section on the practical vows of universal good in the Flower Ornament Sutra says... If you make sentient beings happy, you make all Buddhas happy. Why? Because the heart of great compassion is the substance of the Buddhas. Buddhas means the enlightened ones. Therefore, they develop great compassion on account of sentient beings. Develop the will for enlightenment based on great compassion and attain true awakening on the basis of the will for enlightenment. It is like a giant tree in a desert. If the roots find water, then the branches, leaves, flowers, and fruits all flourish. The giant tree of enlightenment in the desert of birth and death is also like this. All living beings are the root of the tree. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are the flowers. Benefit living beings with the water of great compassion and you can obtain the flowers and fruits of knowledge and wisdom of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So he continues, great compassion is like the sky because it covers all living beings. Great compassion is like the earth because it produces all the teachings. Great compassion makes it possible to see Buddha nature by first clarifying real knowledge for the sake of others. Great compassion makes it possible to pass through unyielding barriers by plumbing the profound teachings more and more for the sake of others. Great compassion makes it possible to penetrate the transcendental by seeking a life beyond for others, 
Great compassion can develop powerful application by striving on this path for the sake of others. For the sake of others. Great compassion can activate intrepidness by keeping a vigorous will alive for the sake of others. Great compassion makes it possible to get beyond regression because the mind is settled for the sake of others. Great compassion can produce broad learning by studying everything for the sake of others. Great compassion can produce erudition by deep deduction of the principles of things for the sake of others. Great compassion can produce blessings by always coming up with expedience for others. Great compassion can annihilate afflictions by sacrificing body, life, and goods for others. Great compassion can eliminate conceit by acting benevolently for others. Great compassion enables detachment from fame and profit by basing everything on truth for the sake of others. Great compassion enables entry into the realm of reality because there is nowhere it does not go for the sake of others. The virtues of great compassion are infinite. They could be expounded upon forever without exhausting them, but it boils down to this. Whoever has great compassion can extinguish all obstructions caused by past actions and can fulfill all virtues. No principle can be understood. No path cannot be practiced. No knowledge not attained no virtue not developed. Just as when you want to win people's hearts, you first love their children, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas consider all living beings their children. So if you love all living beings equally, all the Buddhas will be moved to respond. In, uh, in in Zen, we don't really have much in the way of of uh, actual practices that we do explicitly to develop compassion. But the the idea is, and and this is what Torre is has so obviously has actualized in his life. The idea is that through awakening or even short of awakening by uh, even gradually seeing the interconnectedness of everything, we naturally become more compassionate. That we all, we all have this compassion within us, and it's just a matter of liberating it. Liberating it by um, seeing through the thoughts that obstruct our natural flow of compassion.
Now, skipping forward a few pages, we change topic. Um, he says, if you are genuine wayfarers, okay, pra- practitioners of the way, get to know the strictures and difficulties of the road, the passes and the obstacles, and then only then set out. Entering in directly, let go of your pre-existing fixations and minimize your entanglements. Make your footsteps light and your sense of the way heavy. Heavy. Um, it's sure that is such an inspiring word. Make your sense of of dharma, your commitment to the dharma, firm and solid. Make your footsteps light. When he says, let go of your pre-existing fixations, um, our, our, our attachments to our issues, our um, ingrained notions, ideas, judgments, evaluations, opinions. We uh, chant in affirming faith and mind, just let those fond opinions go. Opinions are a kind of fixation. They, we get fixated on our our likes and dislikes, what we what we think about things. He continues, don't seek fame and gain. Don't mix in in worldly thoughts. Your heart will become joyful as if you were setting out on the road back home like you were going into a mine of gold and jade, like you have become an emperor. Keep on this way, thought to thought, and you can congeal a mass of wonder. That's what we commonly refer to as the doubt mass or the doubt sensation. Wonder is an excellent word. And when when we are in a state of wonder, the mind is open to the degree that we feel that we... um, that we feel wonder, uh, we will be free of our pre-existing fixations. And then he poses some questions, especially apt for those who are working on what am I or who am I, either one. Right now, what is this? What is it that sees? What is it that hears? What is it that moves? What is it that sits? At all times and all places, focus on your mind and see how it is. Without conceiving of being or non-being, without thinking of affirmation or negation, without discriminating, without rationalizing, just observe in this way. 
When the time comes, it will appear of itself without need of your intellectual discrimination. As soon as you conceive discrimination, you obscure original essential nature. Then even if you labored forever, you couldn't get it. Uh, Just some of these phrases um, may not be so easy to relate to, uh, where he says, uh, without conceiving of being or non-being. I don't think a lot of us go around conceiving of those two words, being and non-being. But it's really, what he's talking about is anything related to uh, who we are or what it is, I am, it is, they are, it's in the realm of being, or the opposite, affirmation or negation, getting caught in yeses and noes, without discriminating, without rationalizing. Just look. Look directly. As soon as you conceive discrimination, or in other words, as soon as you get pulled into thoughts, you obscure original essential nature. Like clouds, obscuring the sun or the moon. We can get to the point of awareness, um, especially, most likely, late in Sashin, where we have such acute awareness that we can notice that there are thoughts, that a thought is coming, and then and still ignore what the thought is. It's a very fine line. It's almost a... Uh, it's kind of a pre-warning thing where in very clear state uh, you have a sense of, of some thought arising or rolling in from the west or from the east and can so quickly turn your, or keep your attention on the practice, or quickly turn away from it, that we don't even know what the thought is. We just know that there was something there coming, a cloud to obscure the mind, to mar the mind. One of my uh, favorite statements about dealing with thoughts um, is by from a master I, 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 I don't know which who said this but it, it doesn't matter it's 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 ours if we make it ours he says do not fear the arising of thoughts only be concerned lest your awareness of them be tardy Actually, yes, this is uh, Jino, the uh, Korean master. Let's, let's just break that down again. Don't, don't be concerned about thoughts. Just be concerned that you not dwell in them too long without noticing. That you 
be, be sure that your awareness of them isn't late in coming. Because once we spot them, once we see them for what they are, just clouds, then we can simply uh, redirect our attention to the practice. Thoughts need have no power over us. Uh, If we just see them for what they are, they turn out to be nothing. Just illusions. He continues. Now he, he moves over to the koan mu. If thoughts are flying around, consider this story. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Mu. Bring it to mind directly and don't interpret it logically. Don't interpret it as flavorless. That was a word that had a lot of currency in, in, uh, in China and Japan. Don't interpret it as flavorless. Don't interpret it as nothing. If you conceive any logical understanding, you'll never complete the work. But don't develop an illogical mind either. Logic and no logic are, after all, random ideas. Just bring it up and look at it. That is Mu. It has nothing to do with interpretation. That's Interpretation is just one step removed from the direct experience of Mu. has nothing to do with interpretation. It is the real way of practice of the Buddhas. Continue moment to moment, whether speaking or silent, active or quiet, walking, standing, sitting, lying down. Do not forget it. Or if you occasionally forget, don't lose power. Uh, Lose power by making a big thing out of having lost it. This is unusual where one of these masters will acknowledge that, okay, well, you might occasionally forget it. Uh, but if you do, it's, it's simple. You just go back to Mu. The problem, of course, is that people so often don't just go back to Mu. They make stories, they weave stories about having lost it for the ten millionth time. It's not necessary, it doesn't do any good at all to compound it by thinking about having lost it. That, in that we lose power if we, if we allow the train of thoughts to get started, taking us away. He continues, this is like learning archery. It takes a long, long time to hit the bullseye. Just develop the will to persevere. Be careful not to flag and slack. 
If you give up this teaching, by what teaching can you attain liberation? And if you are not liberated, you cannot escape vicious cycles, cycles of of, uh, birth and death. And how do the pains and troubles of vicious circles, now it goes, how do the pains and troubles of vicious circles compare to the toils and pains of Zen practice? So uh, he's, he's saying this, however, uh, however we might struggle and have pain in Zen practice, it's nothing compared to the pains and troubles of cycling through life and death, time after time, suffering, suffering, suffering. How does the fun of false thinking compare to the delight of seeing essential nature? Even the temporal glory of a human king is still considered noble, how much more a king of the supreme dharma? The fun of false thinking. I've never seen a master bring that up before. It can be fun to... um, to lose oneself in fantasies. It can be temporarily fun. They're, they're, they're pleasant fantasies. But uh, they lead nowhere. Once you've developed a great heart and do not regress moment to moment, the achievement becomes perceptible. Those who detach from birth and death but do not clarify the way are like birds who want to fly without wings, like trees that want to flourish without roots. Detach from birth and death, always remember, this is just a a slogan, a, a, a phrase that was widely used in both China and Japan, no doubt Korea, uh, for uh, birth and death for the world of, of change. Change covers a lot. Rising and falling, success and failure, coming and going, here and there, growing, declining. It really, birth and death is the, is the, the world of thoughts. And then he quotes Dawei, who we read from the first four days of the Sishin. If you do not retreat from your initial inspiration moment to moment, taking your consciousness from its focus on worldly troubles and returning it to insight, then even if you do not break through in this lifetime, still, when you're facing death, you won't be dragged down by bad habits into bad states. In the next life, you'll surely be able to actually experience insight according to the power of your vows in this life. This is a certain fact, not to be doubted. I believe him. 
all the we the work we do this time around will get us that much further ahead for the next one. Being dragged down by bad habits as you're facing death. We get a little sense of this when we're uh, sick, really quite sick in bed. The mind can get feverish or um, go into dark states when we're so vulnerable. But that vulnerability, being sick in bed, is nothing, they say, compared to the vulnerability of entering the bardo after death. In Sashin, we also experience vulnerability. As the days pass, uh, we our, our defensive structures uh, thin out. They gradually dissolve more and more, and we we can be left feeling quite vulnerable, exposed, open, open. That's the that's the price we we pay for breaking down barriers between self and others is openness, and that's the that's the payoff. The price is that it can be unfamiliar and make us feel vulnerable. He says, uh, Torre, after Dawei's passage, Torre says, how much more if your investigation is unremitting? The great Dharma will become manifest like pointing to the palm of your hand. Just let go of gain and loss and affirmation and negation all at once and examine directly right where you are. When sitting, examine while sitting. When active, examine while active. When lying down, examine while lying down. When eating, examine while eating. When speaking, examine while speaking. When doing all tasks, examine while doing all tasks. Uh, gain and loss, uh, just to expand on that a little bit, any any notion of progress or lack of progress, regress, is in the realm of gain and loss. It's not anything we want to pay attention to. Suppose a precious jewel you had hidden away at home got lost one day and you didn't know where it was. When you search high and low and still can't find it, you're uneasy in mind. 24 hours a day, no matter what you're doing, you surreptitiously keep looking far and near. Whose business is this? And what is Buddha nature like? Who is the you that it is like? Then he makes one more pitch for, for vows, taking vows seriously, such as the four bodhisattva vows. 
There may be those who, on reading such a discourse on the power of vows, may mistakenly imagine they have no part in it and cannot follow it in practice. What they don't realize is that this is an expedient for developing an initial attitude of faith, an ancient precedent, ancient, for inspiring the initial outset of practice. It is like a child's first copybook. The letters are not even completely formed, let alone skillful. Mature or not, it's all a matter of long-term practice. One should progress in practice as much as possible according to the teacher's method. The same is true of the vows of students of the way. Although incapable at first, eventually they'll succeed. Even if temporarily discouraged by obstruction caused by ingrained habits, if you can keep your vows in mind, you will return to the original mind before long. Well, it's not not to take that literally that we need to keep those, for example, those bodhisattva vows in mind. We just heard him speaking so strongly about working on Mu or what am I, who am I. That's what we want to keep in mind. But if those, if the longing for awakening is for the sake of others, then that's where the vows come in. Lofty-minded people who genuinely work on the path, when the effort of inner seeking builds up and the power of concentration is full, then ordinary ideation, thinking, and conscious feelings are all inactivated. Reason and speech come to an end, and even the searching mind disappears at the same time. Even the breath nearly stops. This is the time when the great way appears. I think inactivated is a good word here. Our ordinary thinking and our feeling are uh, inactivated. We enter a different realm, great, great rest. But, he said, students should be alert. At this time, don't conceive a single thought of extraordinary understanding, all right, awakening, and don't conceive a single thought of retreating. Let go of body and mind and don't seek anything at all. Don't seek, but if you're working on a koan, question. Bring the koan, bring the koan you've been contemplating powerfully to mind and let whatever states may appear be. Don't get caught in different states of mind because they will come and go. Knowing they aren't real, you won't fear them. Plunging in with your whole body, get your fill of the source, carefully avoiding exciting your mind to grasp and reject. 
You need to let go of your body and relinquish your life therein only once. When the time comes, it happens suddenly, and you know this experience. This is called letting go of your grip over a sheer cliff, then after perishing, coming back to life. Suddenly, in an instant, you recognize the root source, your own nature, the nature of others, the nature of living beings, the nature of afflictions, the nature of enlightenment, the nature of Buddhas, the nature of spirits, the nature of bodhisattvas, the nature of the created, the nature of the uncreated, the nature of the ultimate end, the nature of the sentient, the nature of the insentient, the nature of ghosts, the nature of Asuras, the nature of animals, hells, heavens, polluted lands, pure lands. You see through them all at once, without exception, finishing the great task and passing through birth and death. It is like polishing a mirror. The moment its clear surface is exposed, it can distinguish all things. The coarse appears coarse, the fine appears fine. Blue, yellow, red, white, pretty, ugly, big, small, square, round, long, short. They are reflected as they appear without so much as a particle or tip of a hair left out. So the vividness, the exquisite vividness of of each thing in its uniqueness the, the, the differentiation aspect of reality, seeing the one nature of all phenomena brings out this clarity, this sharpness of differentiation, the differences in people and things. When this occurs, if there is anything unclear, this just means that even though the clarity is there, residual defilement has not yet been removed. The traces of polishing are still there, blocking the reality. This is why we don't conceive the notion we have already attained and don't think of stopping, but seek certainty with an enlightened teacher in order to test our attainment. Yeah, this is solid, standard uh, advice in Zen. Uh, every step of the way, anything you, any kind of attainment you think you have, let go of it, discard it. Does you no good to cling to it in the mind? There's a, there's a saying from the island of Crete, leave where you have succeeded, return where you have failed.
is uh, skipping about 20 pages. When students make use of their power to gradually progress along the road, none of them fail to find quite a few signs. It is like signposts, seeing that uh, something is changing, something is opening. Then all at once they misuse their minds and think they have fully plumbed the source. Some rejoice, some rest, some open big mouths to explain for others, still unaware that they are just borrowing the power of the sayings, koans or other sayings, to dress up and dignify their own views, and this is not the real meaning. Again and again we hear this, we read this in texts from China and Japan, this, uh, this, this it, it suggests that this was quite a problem of people and the monks storming around, um, blabbering about this koan or that koan, or uh, posing uh, as though they know what these things are. We don't have that problem, at least yet. Just keep progressing and do not stop halfway along. An ancient said, those who have attained have mold growing on their mouths. Just keep your mouth shut for now and understand inwardly. In the present time, there is also a type, here he is leveling this warning at a certain type who tends to conceive easy views of the koans of the ancients. All alike, they look at them and say, an iron bar has no flavor. Ah, ha, ha. Sometimes the koans are, are compared to chewing on an iron bar. They're like blind men asking about the color of milk. When told it's like a conch, they interpret it in terms of sound. Told it's like snow, they interpret it in terms of cold. Now, an iron bar does not mean there is no flavor. It means there's nothing you can get your teeth into. This is what's called an iron bar. Just arouse an intense attitude of great fortitude where there is nothing to get your teeth into and chew vertically, chew horizontally, chew and chew unceasingly, and suddenly you'll chew through. Once you've chewed through, you'll find the inexhaustible flavor of Dharma in there. This is called an iron bar. Later people didn't understand and misinterpreted it to mean flavorless. It is like the flower ornament's great sutra in an atom. You cannot get it without breaking down the atom. So too is the iron bar. If you try to seek Buddhism without chewing through it, you'll never succeed. Interesting that the interesting choice by the translator to bring in an atom. Uh, don't think in the uh, seventeen, maybe in the seventeen hundreds, they knew about the atom. Then he quotes uh, Master Wu Zhu. When I arrived at the school of Bayun, I gnawed through an iron beam 
and found all the hundred flavors contained in it. And then Torre. If an iron bar is not chewed through, then it has no flavor at all, so it might be called flavorless. But if you leave off without savoring it, when when can you escape birth and death? It would be like holding the sutra in an atom without extracting it, being falsely acclaimed a venerable one, and spending your whole life idle. Even if you labored for eternity, what benefit would there be? Again and again, we we are reminded that there this is not the easy way. Zen practice, if you want the easy way, uh, find it somewhere else. But it is the, the true way because we know that Anything of value, anything of real, true value takes time, it takes effort. We are fortunate, beyond fortunate, to have found the truth. This truth, I'm not talking about dogma, it's just this, the truth is this. Direct experience, here. Now we can find our way deep into it by abandoning thoughts, just returning again and again, leaving thoughts, conceptions, ideas, being present, present here, nowhere else. This is it. Look. Look. Listen. Time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows. I bow to my fruit, 
Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to meditate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. <laughs>